When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Natalie Goodison about her book titled Introducing the Medieval Swan, published just out in 2022 from the University of Wales Press, um, which is a really fun book. Uh, This book combines clear writing and structure with all sorts of really interesting primary source material right in the text. Um, to help us understand where we, especially in the West, in um, Europe, uh, in Germany, in the UK, get a lot of our assumptions and ideas about swans and what they mean culturally, Um, things like the swan song, things like the crown in the UK owning all the swans. Um, Turns out those ideas come from a particular place. And very helpfully in this book, Natalie explains to us where a lot of our ideas about swans come from. So, Natalie, I'm really pleased to welcome you to the podcast to help us understand and learn. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Um, as Miranda said, I'm Natalie Goodison. I am a medievalist. Uh, my research is mostly in medieval romance, but it tends to look at embodiment. So I've looked a lot at women and women's gynecology, and especially when things kind of go wrong in pregnancy and childbirth. Um, so that's a, a big side shoot. Um, and the way that this kind of connects with my swans is that when I was researching my PhD, I came across all these episodes of um, people transforming into swans. And this my first project was on transformation. So um, that's where the genesis of this book came from. I happened to be at a conference and um, I happened to meet the lady who is one of the series editors. And Diane said, I'm looking for people to write books about animals. And I said, oh, I can write about swans. And she said, that sounds great. Um, So that's how the book began as a kind of offset of my PhD. The other thing probably to mention is that in my academic life, you know, I'm looking at embodiment and transformation and... Um, kind of the history of ideas. I love the history of ideas. But in my private life, you can often find me outside. Um, I love gardening. I love trekking on fells and moors and up Monroe's. And I also happen to keep a flock of ducks. And I ended up getting them um, the day that Durham went into its own lockdown. And I needed something to get me out of bed in the morning. So I have an allotment that's quite large. And we keep the ducks there. And so as I was writing this book on swans, I began keeping a flock of ducks. And it was just amazing just because some of the things I was reading about the technical aspects of swans, I could see what the writer was talking about because I had, an, I had waterfowl. So that was a, a fun 
a fun thing to kind of overlap between the first between swans and ducks. That is a great overlap um, and fascinating to see sort of the intellectual side of your work and the like deeply practical what you're doing on a daily basis um, come together into this project. Um, so one of the great things that you do in the book is a lot of myth busting and myth busting in a sense of helping us understand where we get some of these ideas, untangling maybe assumptions that we've received today, but maybe don't have the same basis in the sources that we think they do. Um, and doing all of this by really investigating a ton of different kinds of sources um, and a real range of primary source material that I really appreciate how you elevate in the text. It's not buried in it's there. You know, we can see the quotations. We can see some very cool images, in fact. Um, so one of the things I'd love to do in the interview is not quite a highlights tour of myth busting, but, but a little bit of that. <laughs> And the first place I'd like to start is this idea that you show so many writers had in the medieval period and earlier that swans had some kind of prophetic ability and that this was indicated in some sense that swans sing before they die. Why was this such a strong belief? Um, yes, it's a strange one, isn't it? And the answer was actually really hard to uncover. So I found all these medieval writers talking about swan singing and swan singing before they die. And these are in kind of the medieval naturalists. So um, Alan of Lille, Bestiaries, Vincent de Bouvet. Um, it was even witnessed. Albertus Magnus says that we have witnessed swan singing. Um, and uh, there are two answers for this. The first is that there are three types of swans in Europe. There is the most common, the mute swan, which is probably what most of us are familiar with. But there are two northerly cousins, and these are called Buick swans and the Hooper swan. And while the mute swan does not swing, sing, both Buick and the Hooper swan are vociferous in their musicality. And they are known to kind of, um, they nest in the tundra, but they winter along the coastline of the Baltic. And in the past, they've known to have very strong numbers in the UK themselves. So it would be possible for um, medieval writers to witness swan singing, especially in winter. But the answer to this goes back much further in some ways than necessarily medieval writers. It goes back to natural writings, um, um, historical natural writings, and the, the basis for these are in classical texts. And writer upon writer in the classical world just mentions that swans sing and that swans sing before they die. So you have... Um, and you have a poem of Agamemnon, you have the Lament for Bion, you have uh, Aristotle's Natural History, it's mentioned in Cicero, it's mentioned by Ovid, it's mentioned in the Aeneid, it's even mentioned in Aesop's Fables. But if you would ask me, right, Natalie, where do you think it all came from? You know, if all these people are mentioning swans with prophetic abilities and, and that they sing before they die. I just think it probably comes, or the two are most combined most powerfully for me in um, Socrates, um, he is facing his ex execution, and this is in Plato's Phaedo. And as he's facing his execution, he's saying, look, I'm not worried about when I die because I have the swans as my exemplar. And I think it's probably clearest if I read just a line. Um, so this is Socrates speaking, and it says, I believe they, that is swans, have prophetic vision. And because they have foreknowledge of the blessings in the other world, they sing and rejoice on that day more than ever before. And I think that I am myself a fellow servant of the swans and am consecrated to the same God and have received from our master a gift of prophecy, no whit inferior to theirs, and that I go out from this life with as little sorrow as they. 
So what is Socrates basically saying here? He's saying that swans are meant to be followers. They're dedicated to the god Apollo. And they get this kind of premonition before they die that they're going to die. And they're so excited about dying and going into the afterlife and being reunited with their god Apollo that they sing joyfully. So it's the idea that you have this like glimpse of prophetic vision and you're so happy you're singing. And Socrates says that that's the exemplar for how I want to die, right? I'm going to go to the gods in the afterlife and I'm so excited. I kind of, he doesn't say sing but (laughs) um, it's the idea of going into the afterlife with joy so I think that's probably where we get the two combined most poignantly in classical writings so that sounds in some ways lovely though not entirely sure I believe it but okay I I can see how this is happening I see how these things are coming together Um, but this then made the next bit of the book perhaps more surprising to me as a reader um, which is to find out that swans were also seen in the medieval period as symbols of hypocrisy, which seems a bit of a contrast to the like joyfully going to death and God thing. Why were swans seen as hypocritical? <laughs> so that was one of the, um, I guess, contributions of the book was that it showed that the swan was a symbol of hypocrisy, which to anyone who's read a bestiary, it's not surprising because in medieval bestiaries, that's the kind of one line that swans were known for, that they were hypocrites. But the question is why? Why were swans known as hypocrites in the, in the Middle Ages? And I think the answer comes down to um, early medieval views of natural history. Um, so a lot of writings in the Middle Ages were taken from classical writings and kind of retranslated, reappropriated, um, reworked. And so what they began to do is you, when you had medieval writers looking at the kind of natural world, one of the things that really excited um, one of kind of the first ways of natural history in the Middle Ages was that they thought that the natural world reflected kind of symbolically um, spiritual things. So pretty much everything could be made into an allegory or it could be made to have spiritual meaning. And so what you get in some of the first bestiaries and um, by this guy named um, uh, Hugh of Foy, he was talking about swans and they say, okay, the swan, when we look at the swan, it has a really, really long neck, right? And that long neck symbolizes pride. And this gets expanded upon. Um, so it's not just that the swan is proud in its long neck, it's that it has this white exterior, really beautifully snowy white exterior. But in these bestiaries and in, in Hugh of Foy's aviarium, it says, but the inside, he has black flesh. Um, so you have kind of the outside is white, but he also has conum negrum and black flesh. And these two are contrasting. So while the outside looks really beautiful and snowy and, and white and gorgeous, actually the inside is not very nice. It's, it's, it's hiding black flesh. But one of the big things I had when I was working out this book um, is wondering what on earth did the black flesh mean? Um, so is this kind of talking about the black flesh of a swan when it's roasted at dinner time? <laughs> you know, is it when it's plucked and basted? Does it turn black then? Um, I even, I wish I had done this. I almost tried contacting the RSPCA just so I could be like, what does a swan look like underneath its feathers? Is, is it black? And um, I'm almost positive it's not black, but it's like a chicken, you know, kind of the white, <laughs> kind of white skin. The best that I could come up with is that if you see a swan like swimming really elegantly on water, it's all white. But what you have is its feet are hiding underneath and its feet are black. And so when it comes out, you have this kind of really white bird that's contrasting against black feet. But those black feet really look hidden. And if you look at the cover of the book that um, I have, it is it shows that image. It shows that you have a white swan above the water and then kind of hiding black feet in the water. And I think the reason that 
the bestiary and authors, um, including Hufoy, were talking about this conum negrum, this kind of black flesh, is just so you could easily, more easily make the kind of spiritual connection. Because um, negrum also or is black and conum is like carnal sins, like bodily fleshly appetites. So it was easy to kind of make that connection and say, oh, so you shouldn't like, you know, as the hypocrite, you know, appears to be good, but really likes, you know, fleshly appetites. So um, it just made the kind of spiritual connection a lot stronger, if that makes sense, by using those choice words. That does make sense. But also, I, I do want to know what a swan looks like in all of its various forms, um, <laughs> with and without feathers. <laughs> Me too. Well, so so I have another question in this vein of kind of like trying to match up what is said about swans and their actual physical characteristics, right? Now, we have this question about which bits of them and when are black. Um, can they prophesy their own death? Um, but of course, the one that we've already kind of touched on a little bit is this idea of them singing. Um, and you've explained helpfully that there are different kinds of swans, and that may be where some of that confusion comes from. Um but just to clarify, there, there's really no chance that mute swans sing at all, right? Yeah, so the question is, is do swans sing? Um, mute swans aren't known to sing. So they have kind of a range of, of vocal ability, but it tends to be more in like hissing, especially in situations of threat or kind of um, maybe cooing or clucking noises. Um, it doesn't have the kind of vociferous song that you know in the northern tundra swans. But what's really cool about the mute swan is that it has this really unusual ability and that its wings, when it makes, when it flies, its wings make this wow, wow, wow sound. And it's been known through classical writers and medieval writers that this is the mute swan singing. Um, and in my book, I kind of talk about two medieval songs and I talk about kind of riddles that talk about the kind of this vow vow being the mute swan singing. And one of the highlights of me writing this book is I happen to have a very, very special office that overlooks the River Weir in Durham. And as I was editing this book, I heard the vow, vow, vow sound. And I looked up and I thought, no, it can't be. And I looked out my window and I saw two mute swans um, flying on the River Weir, which I had never seen before. So that was very, very special to kind of hear that for the first time. Um, as far as swans singing, you do get, like I said, you do get Buick and Whooper swans that sing very vociferously, very noisily. And it's even known that they can sing in duet and um, they can actually harmonize. So these birds have this amazing ability and a very powerful ability to sing. Um, and there have been um, some cases of people who say that they've heard actually um, these people, these swans singing in duet, which is amazing. Wow. Okay, that, that's going to be a YouTube search of mine later on, probably for some of the listeners too. Um, what an amazing experience to have while I'm writing the book to look out the window and go, oh, hang on a second, that's literally the thing I'm writing about. It was amazing. It was one of the, like I said, it was one of the highlights. That's a very cool way to kind of take something that maybe doesn't look like it's going to actually pan out in fact and then have that experience um and in some ways that contrasts rather sharply with something else you talk about in the book that you've briefly mentioned now that turns out if i'm not going to spoil it too much um your search to see if this if your assumption matched up reality um maybe wasn't as positively ending as seeing the swans fly over the river and of course what i'm referring to is the trope of the swan maiden in literature 
which you mentioned earlier, was kind of one of the motivations um, for looking into this topic in the first place. What happened when you actually went to search for where this kind of big assumption of the swan maiden in literature comes from? Yes. Oh, so this is a big question. It has kind of two parts. Um, the first part is, is you do, you have swans sing. Um, you have this idea that swans sing. And the kind of big question is, is do swans sing when they die? Um, and it turns out that is both biologically and genetically possible. And that's one of the things I, I look at in the book and kind of um, explore that it, it has eyewitness accounts. You do have people who say that they do sing when they die. Um, and this is linked tangentially to swan maidens. Um, when I was doing my PhD, I read all these sources that said um, it's possible for swans to, swans to sing when they die. And it's also, there's also this swope trope of the swan maiden and I looked and I looked and I looked and I found that there is evidence um, potentially biologically and genetically for swans singing when they die but I haven't been able to find the medieval swan maiden trope and I, I looked throughout all these sources so one of the sources said right it's in this medieval text called grey law so I went and I looked in grey law and it has um, a cool scene of um a guy kind of coming across a lady who's bathing he takes her clothes and he says you have to be my lover and she says fine so she's a fairy but like she doesn't transform so the text also say yeah you can also see it in this French shock called Gijmar so I went to look in Gijmar and sure enough there were no swan maidens it was a same kind of weird fairy lady who's bathing the guy steals her clothes and asks her to be her lover but there's no sense that it like she could transform and that she was a bird so then they said okay we'll try Friedrich von Schwaben there's definitely it in this German text called Friedrich von Schwaben now Friedrich von Schwaben hasn't been edited in like years and years and years and so it was very difficult to find this so I had some wonderful help from friends helping me find this bit in Friedrich von Schwaben and it turns out that there is transformation in Friedrich von Schwaben you do have this um, woman who can transform into um, a dove and she's been cursed by an evil fairy and Friedrich does kind of see her um, at, a, at a lake bathing and he does have to kind of coerce her to be um, his bride and then she transforms back into a woman and they can be happily united the only real kind of case of swan maiden because Friedrich had doves not swans so the only real case of swan maiden I could find was in the old Norse text and it was in the text called Volan Darkvida now Volan Darkvida is two accounts of the same, um, I guess, scenario. You have an older version, and you have an older version where you have these amazing women who have these um, swan feathers, is what they're called, and uh, they kind of choose their husbands, and they have their agency. They choose their lovers, and then they kind of are with them for a little while, and then they fly away. So they're kind of like birds, right? Like who choose nest and depart. So these women who have these swan abilities, which we're not really sure what they are, choose the men and fly away. Um, and then several hundred years later, this is expanded upon in a, a prose section and it changes it totally. It says that the men are the ones who kind of um, seize the woman's clothing and they're the ones who um, choose the women to be their wives. And um, then one day the women um, just up and leave because they're they're called Valkyries. So um, and Valkyries are the women who fly over uh, the field of the slain and they choose the best warriors and they bring them to Valhalla. So this later edition does have kind of women and swan cloaks and you have the idea of them transforming, but you also have them leaving. Um, but it's still quite nebulous. You, you don't really have all the kind of tropes that we think of when we think of Swan Maiden. And generally when we think of Swan Maiden is it's a woman who is transformed and into a swan, 
right? And that's just who she is the whole time. And I haven't really found that in the Middle Ages. And so I I have found it later on. So like in like 18th, 19th century, um, and especially like children's stories or kind of short fairy stories, I found that. But even though everyone says it, it exists in the Middle Ages, I haven't found it um, to the extent that I thought I should have. That's really interesting to find out that they're not there. And even when you ask people, like, no, 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 it's definitely going to be over there. And you go investigate and go, hmm, actually, um, what an odd experience, I suppose, to track something down and hunt through it and then go, oh, wait a second. Now I have to rethink. That's It was a bit of detecting work. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely sounds like it. Um, and such an interesting finding and contribution as well. So thank you for explaining that to us. Um, I'd like to move from literature a bit into, I guess, popular culture, I suppose, um, though there's definitely a link, and ask you to help us understand why swans go, obviously, they, they're popular before the Middle Ages, you've talked about antiquity and um, writers thinking about them in terms of nature, etc. But you show in the book that swans become really popular um, at a particular point in the medieval period, um, all over people's clothes and tombs and all sorts of things. So why did the swan become such a popular image and motif in the Middle Ages? This was a really fun one to, to kind of sleuth and to track down because it seems so surprising to me. Um, and the answer is lies in literature, essentially. Um, so the book is divided into four chapters. You have kind of natural history, the second chapter is literature, the third chapter is history, and the fourth chapter is like husbandry and uh, like legal aspects um, and the final chapter is the afterlives but what's really interesting is that the link between literature and history is profound because there well the answer to how the swan became popular lies in this legend called um, the story of the swan knight and the story of the swan knight tells the story of um, a seven no, I'll go back further. Uh, it tells of a king who finds a lady bathing and she has this kind of weird gold necklace. And he says, right, can he steals a necklace and he says, will you be my lover? And she says, yes. But like after they kind of consummate their relationship, she says, actually, I have had this vision that I'm going to give birth to septuplets. And in some versions, she dies and some versions, she doesn't. But um, so the king's like, OK, but they ended up getting married. But um, the mother-in-law really doesn't like the new queen. And the queen does give birth to septuplets, but the mother-in-law really, really hates this. And so she ends up stealing the septuplets and replacing them with, in some versions, babies and some versions, snakes. So she's crazily kind of accused of like bestiality of like the worst sort and the high court. And so she's punished in some legends, some legends she dies. Um, so these children are all taken away at birth, but they're also born with these strange necklaces around um, their neck, kind of reminding um, me of the, the when the fairy was first kind of accosted by the king. She was holding a, a gold chain. Um, so the children end up are being abandoned. Um, they are found by hermit. He rescues them. He brings them up um, under his care. And one day the queen mother learns that all these children are still alive. And so she sends her evil henchmen to come and get them. And she steals the chains of six of them. And when the chains are removed from these children, they turn into swans, um, all except one one well they're in one version it's a girl but in the version that i think is more important is the boy and um 
the boy ends up um, like saving his siblings. He ends up defeating um, and defending his his mother and his siblings in trial by combat. And he ends up releasing them and he ends up finding all their chains and working it all out. And all the chains get reunited back to their siblings. And when this happens, they all transform back into humans and that's all very happy except for one. So there was one chain and um, they tried to transform the chain into a goblet, but because the chain was kind of tampered with, it can't then have its retransformed to potential. So this poor one sibling, one poor sad sibling is a swan forever. And in one version, this so upsets the knight brother who kind of rescued all his siblings. He's like, I can't leave my, my younger brother out. Fascinating. And how does this then translate to popularity more broadly? Um, so this knight says, I can't leave my brother out. And so he decides to go um, traveling with his brother and he gets his little swan brother to pull him in a boat. So he becomes known as the Knight of the Swan. And there are loads and loads and loads of stories about the Knight of the Swan. So it's about the swan who has adventures and he's being uh, kind of transported about by a swan. And you have loads of them in German culture. And, um, and loads of them in French culture as well and in, in the French Middle Ages. Um, but this story about the Swan Knight was circulating in the Middle Ages around the same time as the stories of the First Crusade. And the First Crusade happened this guy named Godfrey of Boulogne with his brother and um, I guess lots of other aristocrats went and they conquered Jerusalem. Godfrey was king for a year and then he died. But as these stories about the conquest, the successful conquest of Jerusalem were coming back into um, kind of the medieval cultural ether, um, they began, they came at the same time as the stories of the Swan Knight. And so somehow the two were conflated. And so you begin getting um, stories about saying that was just like, oh yes, Godfrey's famous ancestor was the Knight of the Swan. He was my grandfather. And, um, and some, some, some texts you have you know brothers chatting you have um baldwin and godfrey chatting and said oh yes you did really well godfrey in that battle you fought nearly well, as well as our great ancestor the swan knight <laughs> and so um somehow the idea that having this illustrious lineage um was amazing and that godfrey of Bouillon, who ended up conquering jerusalem um had this amazing mythical ancestry and um godfrey became very very popular he became one of the nine worthies so he was kind of um on um, major motifs and and books on you know stonework throughout the Middle Ages. So the nine worthies were kind of like I don't know the Avengers, you know somebody that everybody would have known about. And um, he became so popular that lots of um, lines in I guess the royal lines really wanted to claim ancestry from him. So they began kind of competing over themselves to say, Hey, I have swan my ancestry. This this swan guy, Godfrey, and the swan guy, they were my great great grandfathers. Um, so you have in, in Germany, you have the House of Cleves is particularly big. You also have Brabant, the Duchy of Brabant were quite big, and that's one of my ancestry. Um, and then in France, this um, was in Boulogne and Ardon. Uh, so Godfrey of Bouillon was from Bouillon and you had his brother Eustace ended up going back to the Duchy, ended up getting married and he had a daughter named Matilda and Matilda went on to marry um, King Stephen of England. And so you actually have the Swan Knight ancestry translating right into uh, the English royal line. And from that, as the Middle Ages kind of progressed and heraldry became more important and identifying ancestry became very key, 
the swan was appropriated as symbols and onto badges and onto shields and onto bed linens and onto tombs and onto headdresses. And so I um, ended up walking around Frankfurt Cathedral with my dad, uh, I think around 2018. And as I was walking around the cathedral, I happened to see um, a guy that had on a tomb on the wall, he had swans. And I was so excited that I took a picture at the time. And I was just like, oh my goodness, he has swans on his, his shield. And it turns out that this guy was called Rudolph and he claims on my ancestry. But Frankfurt Cathedral were so kind, they ended up giving me the image so that I could include it in my book. So if you buy the book, you can <laughs> see a picture of Rudolph with his um, swan knight shield and swan knight headdress as kind of a part of his identity. Amazing. That's a very cool kind of addition as well. And I'm glad you mentioned um, the images that are included in the book because they do add a lot, particularly to understanding this popularity. Um, I think the Avengers idea also really kind of helps our sort of superheroes in general, you know, the idea of kind of seeing the Batman logo just all over the place um, on random things or Captain America, things like that, um, does seem to be kind of the vibe in a way of how swans were seen and used during this time period yeah I hadn't really thought of it through until I just said it um but I think it's probably right (laughs) and I do love the pictures of my book I think that they are just so they're one of the things I like about the book the most well one thing that I think um was particularly interesting to read about in terms of the imagery really of the swan and now with the lens of the Avengers going "Hmm, what could happen um But you talk about how in a particular instance, specifically during the reign of Richard II in England, um, the swan is not just a visual motif of sort of, I come from this great family, look at me, or things like that. It also becomes a political symbol. How does that happen? Yes. So the reign of Richard II, which I should have known before, but I didn't, um, was so tumultuous. And... In short, Richard was a child king. His his dad was um, the Black Prince, and he ended up dying before um, he was able to be crowned. And so the crown passed to Richard when he was something like 10 years old. So he ended up being governed by um, his dad's brothers, so by his uncles. And these uncles were called Woodstock, um, Thomas of Woodstock and John of Gaunt. And Thomas Woodstock was known to have married into a family called the De Boons. Um, it's spelled De Bohun. I think it's pronounced Daboon. And the Daboons are known to have celebrated their Swan Knight ancestry like crazily. Um, you had um, one Humphrey Daboon like have this amazing saddle device uh, made that has like a swan on the pommel. And he's known to have like Swan Knight tapestries. He's known to have like the Swan Knight book in his library. He had them on billow- pillows and bed linens and curtains. Like he loved his Swan Knight ancestry. Actually, he's one of the first people um, that we can see the Swan Knight being used, the Swan being used as a seal. Um, so in the um, there's a called something called the Baron's Letter of 1301. He ended up using that Swan on his Baron's seal. So the Daboons really had this kind of amazing ancestry. So when Thomas of Woodstock married into the Daboon line, he ended up appropriating that symbol himself too. So he really celebrated his Swan Knight ancestry and really had all kinds of amazing things like candelabras and pendants and um, miters and salt cellars, all shaped in swans, um, which is pretty incredible. And um, uh, Thomas of Woodstock's wife, um, her sister ended up marrying the son of John of Gaunt, who was called Henry Bolingbroke. So Henry Bolingbroke, um, he had kind of his dad's John of Gaunt's kind of symbols, but he also appropriated the swan of his wife as well. So you have two major players around the reign of Richard II who are using swans. Um, 
so we know that um, two men who governed uh, Richard or were um, in control of Richard or trying to control Richard um, used swans as their symbol. We know that um, Richard had a really hard time with his uncles. And um, we know that he had a kind of close circle of favorites that um, his uncles and others opposed. So his uncles um, ended up opposing the kind of like little nucleus of power around Richard and um, they were known as the Lord's Apollon and so they basically had like private armies that fought each other and um, Richard's uncles um, in the Lord's Apollon won and they held a merciless parliament where they exiled lots of Richard's I guess, advisors and the people he liked close to him and they executed others. So Richard was quite sore about this. And 10 years later, um, he was able to get his revenge. So he was able to um, have Henry Bolingbroke exiled and um, he was to have um, Thomas Woodstock. He arrested him um, and seized all his goods and then um, he was later murdered. Um, so why why am I talking about um, swans in the reign of Richard II? Well, because they were more or less the the sign of his allies, uh, of his enemies, excuse me. We know that um, swan pendants were being um, circulated around this time. And we know that these badges are kind of things that people wore on their clothing to kind of denote favor for whoever had given it to them. So we know that swans, swan badges exist. You can see them in the British Museum. Um, we have the Dunstable Jewel, which is also in the British Museum, um, which we think is also um, a badge. Um, and then you also have in the Richard, the, the Treasury of Richard II, you also have um, another um, swan badge, which we think was Woodstock's that he seized um, So you have these ideas that these badges are a huge thing that are demoting support. And they were kind of um, like people who were in their private armies. So, you know, um, Swan maybe represented the private armies of Woodstock or kind of curried support for Woodstock and Bolingbroke. And the reason why um, I go on and on about this is because the badges were a really big issue for Richard. He um, tried to get them outlawed. He in the House of Commons said, you know, I don't want these happening anymore. And basically the House of Lords said, no, we really, really like the badges. Um, And we also know that about this time that um, Richard II began issuing his own badge. And his own badge um, is beautiful. It's a white heart, so an albino heart. And around its neck is a collar with a chain. Um, So it's kind of crowned around its neck and it has this long chain and in the book I argue that it's almost an exact foil um, to the swans that I think were being um, uh, circulated around that time that were the symbols of Woodstock and possibly also Bolingbroke and um, if you look in the book there's the Dunstable Jewel and the Dunstable Jewel is a white swan which also has this we call it ducally gorgeous a crown around its long neck and then it has a a long chain. So um, basically, I argue that I think the swan was a foil um, to the white heart. And I think that it was the, the sign of his enemies. And why do I say the sign of his enemies? Well, basically, um, Richard II ended up getting deposed. And who should end up coming to power but Henry Bolingbroke, who then became Henry IV. And Henry IV is known to have swans. Um, there are lots and lots of images that he uses the swan as his image. And then um, like swans adorn his tomb. And um, they're on his name and by his name in certain medieval manuscripts. So it seems like the swan was kind of the, the house of Lancaster symbol, which was kind of the antithesis to Richard II. Henry IV does seem to be pretty into swans, so I'm at least <laughs> very persuaded by this argument. Oh, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased. I'm, I'm not a historian by background, so um, I tend to be um, a literature specialist, but I was so fascinated by all of this that um, I really went down a really large historical rabbit hole. So um, I'm pleased that you thought that it was persuasive. 
Well, I'd love to stay in um, history for a moment and stay in England as well um, and ask you about something that sounds like a myth, but is actually true, that most swans, in fact, the vast majority of swans in England, are the property of the crown. Um, and that that's been true for a good few hundred years um, and is still, in fact, true today. So I was wondering if you could explain to us how that's happened. <laughs> yes. Um, when I first arrived in Britain, I arrived in Edinburgh and there is um, a little lock or a little kind of pool underneath Arthur's seat. And I was told as soon as I arrived, I said, those are the Queen's swans. You know, you're going to be in prison for a year if you harm them. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh my goodness. Um, and it turns out um, that uh, that the monarch does own all the swans, um, definitely in England. Um, or at least they have the right to unlock swans. And this occurred through a funny thing, and it's that swans were really popular to feast on in the Middle Ages. So if swans are your banqueting item of choice for the upper class, if they are kind of what you kind of chose to shoot a show off. So I know that like Henry III had like something like 150 swans on his like Christmas dinner banquet or <laughs> some absurd number. Um, so if you have to have that kind of number of swans, you need to have a place to keep them. And you can keep them in several ways. Um, I found in Durham Prowl, priory manorial accounts that they used to be kind of husbanded and kept so like in pens or in norwich i knew they had a swan hospital um which is like where they had like uh like a depressed area where um they could kind of keep them in uh like a like a what am I trying to say, like a private lock where they could kind of keep it guarded so they couldn't really escape. But the big problem is when you have wildlife is that swans are quite wild. And so how do you keep them semi-domesticated? Um, so if I had a swan and I kind of let it wander on my local field or the common common you know, town common, how do I keep my swan from mating with another swan and then nesting on somebody else's land? And so the answer to that came through um, marking swans. And so swans used to be marked on their upper mandible, which is their top bill. And they have like different marks would represent who you were. So you, in my book, I include a couple examples of swan marks. So I include the mark of the Archbishop of Canterbury and I include the mark of um, the father of Anne Boleyn. So the Boleyn swan mark. Um, and these were just so that you could identify which was your swan mark. But it also is really easy to nick swans. <laughs> so um, as I was reading all these sources um, and I was reading about swan laws and swan courts, also called swan moats, um, it basically read something like the English monarchy getting more and more annoyed that their swans just kept getting nicked and eaten. <laughs> and, and if they were um, in a kind of semi-common land, um, they would be easily, easily taken, easily nicked. So um, swan marks came in to be um, identifying factors, but then because the monarchy were kind of getting more and more annoyed that people were nicking their swans, they began to set up things called swan herds. So it was somebody who was in charge of looking after the care of swans and to kind of ensure that the, the king or king swans weren't disturbed. And then these also were districted by counties. So you had lots and lots of swan herds. Um, and then eventually over time, you had the one royal swan herd. And then um, the crown, I guess is what I'll call it, um, ended up beginning to kind of restrict who could mark swans? So um, if the king or king swan is unmarked and it's kind of resting in a very accessible little bit of um, river, um, I could catch it with a net and I could mark it with my own mark and claim it as mine. So to keep this from happening, um, 
they had the monarchy began to kind of institute rules and say, okay, no, 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 you can only have a swan mark if you have like land, essentially. And then it kind of increased. Okay, you can only have a swan mark if you pay the crown for the right to have a swan mark. And then you have to pay the crown every year for the right to have a swan mark. <laughs> and then um, uh, the regulations just kept increasing, increasing. And then there were so many disputes about who owned swans that they had to set up something called swan moats or swan courts. And you have Queen Elizabeth I being really cross, saying, could you please investigate why my 200 swans have turned out to only be nine? And can you say what person and persons have you? You know, where have they gone, essentially? So she's charged a swan moat, though, this court, to kind of look into this example. And in that one, it sounded so funny the guys basically said they must have gotten sick I don't know what happened <laughs> I don't know what happened to them um, so they obviously didn't weren't very happy to be investigated in the swan court um, all this to say is over time um, you have James the first um, making laws about swans you have Elizabeth the first making laws about swans um, and these kind of get re restricted year by year by year just to kind of make it easier for the swan for the crown to have control over the swans until you get to Charles the second in 1633 and his swan act basically says right all unmarked swans are mine <laughs> you don't get to mark any unmarked swans unless you have explicit permission on a crown like on behalf of the crown and if you're caught stealing swan or marking swans you basically get a huge a huge fine in your prison for a year and um what's so funny is um swans um are still i guess technically owned by the crown but um queen elizabeth only exercised her right on um a bit of the river thames um it was um between something like uh abbotsbury um kind of on your on the way um towards oxford um and Every year, what you'd have is you'd have swan uppings. And so you'd have the swan herd with his role in his swan book. And he'd go and he'd look and he'd kind of make sure, you know, which swans were whose, um, you know, recorded that there were, Archbishop of Canterbury had, you know, six swans marked. And then what do you do with baby swans? So um, these were also given kind of marks um, based on, you know, who had the dad, who had the mom swan, and who had um, the grass on which... Um, the swan was nesting and so each of them would get kind of access to the signets so when they grew up and nested you could also have them these ended up being recorded um in the swan books and these are called swan rolls and there's hundreds and hundreds of them and these are in you know libraries and in archives that you can still look um at which are very beautiful um but this is a very very long answer to say that yes the queen does or i guess now the king owns all the swans in england for sure um, but they tend to only exercise their right on a bit of the thames fascinating i think that that's perhaps the best example um, of, in fact, some myth bossing the other way of kind of going, oh, well, we've heard this thing, but that can't possibly be true. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. So thank you for um, explaining that to us and helping us understand kind of how these things that we think are sort of purely historical or purely literary um, kind of have come to us in the present day, at least in this case in England. And in fact, for my last question or my last substantive question, I'd love to move away from England and ask you about Germany, um, because although we have spoken of some English examples, you show really throughout the book that there's a whole bunch of ways that swans are still a big deal in Germany that have um, come down through um, all sorts of different kinds of culture to um, be really important in a number of different facets. So I was wondering if you could maybe explain to us a little bit kind of why are swans a big deal in Germany? Yes, they are a big deal in Germany. And that was one of the fun things in uncovering this book. Um, 
And I guess if I was to say, you know, what do we think about swan songs or have you ever heard of the Swan Knight? I think most of us would kind of go, ah, nah, Wagner? Maybe Wagner? Is there a Swan Knight in Wagner? And that's the kind of closest that I think um, British and American culture gets to the Swan Knight. It's just not a story that's popular. It's not one that's been passed down. Um, the Swan Knight story was immensely popular in Germany. Um, and there are so many aspects of the Swan Knight in um and in the story so the story is a little bit different from the french version i told earlier um and it's kind of in like embedded in arthurian like literature so we have one version called lohengrin which is probably the most famous and in it you have um the swan knight is actually a resident in the castle of the grail and there's writing on the grail telling him to go to elsa Brabant because she is in dire need and she's being persecuted without an adversary so the swan and then all of a sudden a swan appears and it ferries the swan knight and it turns out that the swan knight isn't a brother the swan isn't a kind of transformed brother it's an angel divinely sent by god to kind of bring him to rescue this lady just at her moment of of dire need um so he rescues her he kind of defeats her adversary but in this story um he says okay i'll marry you and we can live happily as long as you don't ask where i'm from and then of course she does eventually ask where she's from and it's very sad and he has to depart and go back to the realm of the grill because she broke her interdict and um that motif is very common in the middle ages but um she he did sign her children before he kind of went back from whence he came so this story is very very popular i can list about maybe five or ten um medieval medieval German sources, middle high German sources that include this story. But this is compounded with the idea that there are regions in Germany that are called Schwangau, or literally Schwan region, and that there are castles within that region that are known to have a really strong kind of um, knightly heritage of swans. So one of the people from these regions is called Hiltbolt von Schwangau, and he was a poet minstrel, um, we have some of his lyrics preserved to us, but he had a black swan on his um, on a shield on his headdress, and there's a picture in the book that has um, him dancing as a minstrel in kind of his swan regalia, which is amazing. But it turns out that um, in the 19th century, um, as um, Germany was um, in its kind of sub sub regions, um, uh, so you had the kings of Bavaria ended up overtaking the Schwangau regions and taking up these castles. And you had um, King Maximilian II of Bavaria um, coming along and taking these old castles. And so there were three main castles and he took one of them and he refurbished it and he made it um, the family's um, kind of summer residences where they would go and um, they would spend their summers. And because the Knights of Schwangau were such a big emblem of the region, he adopted it as a leitmotif through his palace. Now, his son, King Ludwig II, ended up um, taking um, one of the other two ruins and making it into something called Neuschwanstein. So this is Neuschwan Castle. And um, Neuschwanstein is incredibly famous. We probably know it best from being the Disney logo. So Neuschwanstein Castle was taken. Um, it was uh, basically the inspiration behind Cinderella's castle. And then Cinderella's castle is, of course, Lucy's logo. But what's so cool about King Ludwig is he was super good friends with um, Wagner. And he absolutely loved Lohengrin. And so he even wrote a letter to, to Wagner saying, I've inspired, you have inspired bits of this castle that I'm building, which I want you to come and live there, by the way. But this bit of it that I'm, I'm building right now reminds me so much of Lohengrin. Um, now, Wagner's Lohengrin is, he basically took this middle high German story that I just mentioned, and he translated it into his famous opera um, about the Swan Knight and um, him rescuing um, Elsa of Brabant. Um, again, the idea of transformation is different. Instead of um, being an angel sent by God, the, the transformed um, swan ends up being Elsa's missing half-brother, Gottfried. Um, 
but um, King Lug would love this story. And so there is like an entire section of New Schwanstein Castle that is um, called like something like Swan Corner. And it's basically like plastered with all swans, anything swans, it has a swan in it. So you have like six different, at least six different paintings of aspects of the opera, of the swan knight, of the swan being drawn in, of him bringing the swan knight, of the swan departing, um, of the swan's arrival with the swan knight. Um, so you have these huge reliefs kind of above the room, but then all throughout the palace, like on cushions, on furniture, on doors, on lampstands, um, Anything you can think of, there are swans literally everywhere. Um, and he loves swans as a leitmotif throughout the palace. And so, and of course, New Schoenstein is, is one of the hallmarks and the highlights of British culture. Um, sorry, excuse me, not British culture, of German culture. It's so iconic and so beautiful. Um, so here you have um, the middle, I guess, the medieval swan inspiring um, 19th century architecture and um, becoming an icon of Germany in some aspects. Amazing. Well, thank you for tracing that for us, taking us on a tour. Um, and I think definitely one contribution of the book is being able to go to a bunch of places in Europe and in Britain and kind of go, oh, wait, I know why that's there. Or, oh, look, there's a swan. Um, and so you could come with all sorts of like swan spotting tips at cathedrals and things like that from this book. Yes, yes. <laughs> I could. Fun, really. um, but I'm guessing that creating a popular guidebook to hunt down swan icons is probably not your next project, which, you know, fair enough. You've already made rather a lot of contributions. Um, but I'm wondering if you could, as our last piece to finish off the interview, give us a little teaser of what you might be working on next. Sure. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that I'm really interested in um, women's health and gynecology and, and giving birth, especially when things go awry. And um, my next project is looking at that. And um, one of the ways it, it links into my swan research is that you had um, the swan, I guess the mother of the swan, like giving birth to septuplets. And of course, it is an extremely um, abnormal thing to give birth to seven children at one time. And so in my book, I have in the swan book, I have a picture of um, the mother in bed rest. And you can see all of her seven children in bassinets on the side. Um, so it's these interesting interesting these um, ideas of um, motherhood and kind of abnormal birth that have really taken my fancy so um, I'm trying to decide whether to to look at this through a literary lens so kind of all the abnormal births in a, a literary light or if I should do a historical lens or if I should combine them and do both um, so that's what will be taking up my brain power in the next year or so. That sounds wonderful I personally would vote both and to make a book and come back and tell us all about it, what it is. Um, but best of luck with that project. Um, and while you are off investigating and deciding what track you want to take, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled Introducing the Medieval Swan, just out in 2022 from the University of Wales Press. Dr. Natalie Goodlison, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me.